From the same station that invented radio with subtitles. This is the elixir of eternal youth. A worldly story told by a group of travellers. A history of Brisbane, Australia and the world. This is Radio in Colour. A special documentary series to celebrate four decades of Brisbane's four, 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 triple, triple, triple Z. Hello, I'm Karen, your host for episode seven. Welcome to Radio in Color, a special documentary series to celebrate four decades of Brisbane's oldest FM radio station. This show is the first of five episodes about the 1980s. Today, we'll be covering some artistic controversies that rocked the 80s locally and internationally. We tell stories of writers. Poets and censors of the 1980s. We learn about the work of two Brisbane poets who turned a new leaf on what it means to live in this country we call Australia. And we look at how Australia's support for Indonesian strongman government of decades turned the business of literary translation into a surprisingly risky endeavor. The three stories in our episode today explore the creative power of the artist least likely, the censor. We learn about smutty books, confiscated by Australian customs, novels told as stories in Indonesian jails, and cassette tapes used to incite revolution in Iran. But first, what is that drives people to read from the book of politics? Two political exiles in Brisbane talk about reading novels that have incited the revolution within. We learn from Mr. Rodolfo Alamand, who was forced to leave Chile in the 1980s, and Mrs. Rima Flehan, who came to Australia from Syria via Jordan last year. My name is Samantha Moreno. I was born in the land where magical realism was invented, Colombia. Growing up, reading novels such as Love in Time of Cholera, News of a Kidnapping and 100 Years of Solitude planted a seed on my soul to become a storyteller and a journalist, just like my idol, the Nobel Prize winner Gabriel Garcia Marquez. In 2014, the world received the high news news of his death in Mexico. My dream of meeting him had vanished, just like his character Remedios La Bella did, because of her pure beauty. I attended his tribute in the center of the capital city, Bogota, where the low and profound sound of the Requiem by Mozart seemed to open the skies. Gabriel's yellow paper butterflies were flying, reminding us of our identity and national history. At the end of the day, a dozen of heartfelt accordions played Gabo's favorite vallenatos, which made us all cry. 
And if he had written his own death, it started raining, so the butterflies and our tears were gushing out on the streets, the same streets that once were rivers of blood due to the 10-year civil war. Months later, I went as a reporter to the International Book Fair of Bogota, where a new building called Macondo was inaugurated in honor to the famous author. There, among a bunch of journalists, I saw him. He saw me. It was Jaime Garcia Marquez, his younger brother. I held my breath to find the words once I memorized to say to Gabo. Jaime smiled and told me that Gabo's secret was never stop writing. We talked at length that afternoon, and there was Gabo between us, sealed forever in a hug from another time, from a magical one where peace is possible. Up next, a true story about revolutionaries reading novels. One novel in particular, 100 Years of Solitude, is a novel about a town, a family, and time. José Aureliano Buendía married Úrsula, and they had three children. The three children are José Arcadio, who married Pilar Ternera, Aureliano, and Amaranta. José Arcadio and Pilar Ternera had Aureliano José, and he also had Arcadio, who married Santa Sofía de la Piedad. Fernanda del Campo married Aureliana II, and together they were the parents of José Arcadio, Renata, and Amaranta Úrsula. One Hundred Years of Solitude tells the story of six generations of the Buendía family, the leading family in the fictional town of Macondo, all of whose males are called José Arcadio or Aureliano. Theirs is a story of endless repetition, of eternal return, of ideas that have rightly fallen out, of fashion coming back for a new wave, of fated popularity as new generations discover them afresh. Rima Flayhan. I think each character has a hair revolution uh, case because from the founder of this little town, uh, Jose, who, who left his uh, society and tried to find another place with his wife and create a new place, a new state, and try to uh, arrange everything, uh, how the, the home will look like, the street and everything. And after that, he, he would make another revolution because he was thinking that he need to leave this place also. After he create everything, he, he want to leave this place and go to another place because he want to discover the world. And he think uh, that he's, he is tiring from the same lifestyle. He forget about his children and he was really uh, drowned on this uh, curiosity about what is happening in the other places, not on this place. So I think each character has hair revolution. It's not only a political revolution, it's also social revolution inside him and on the society. In a sense, José and Úrsula are the only two characters in the story, and their children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren are variations on their strengths and weaknesses. José, forever fascinated by the unknown, takes up project after project in order to make gold, discover the ocean, or photograph God. He eventually goes mad, smashes things, refuses to speak except in Latin, and is tied to a giant chestnut tree in the middle of the family garden. 
Ursula, his wife, is a strong-willed woman and a benevolent ruler. She is a quick-witted matriarch bent on fixing things and fixing people. In the novel, Ursula is often heard arguing back six generations of crazy schemes. She is no long-suffering wife. At heart, she is a peacemaker. The novel made a lasting impression on Rima, who read the novel when she was a teenager before growing up to become a feminist and human rights activist. I was in Syria, in my town, Sweda. I was 17 uh, and it was really complicated and difficult uh, narrative for me because this story has many characters, the same names, six generations. The last page, uh, there was a family tree, and it's very important to have this family tree because you forget all the time who is the son of whom and who is the father, who is the mother, the, name, the same names every time. So it's helpful to have this family tree. When I first read the book, I first read it when I was roughly the same age, when I was 17. But all of the versions in Spanish, none, none of the books ever include a printed family tree. And to read A Hundred Years of Solitude is a little bit of a rite of passage for many people, and it definitely was for me. It's the first adult book that you read. And so one of the tasks that you have to do is grab a pen, and then in the last page, in the inner cover of the book, you just write, you know, who is Coronel Aureliano Buendia, respect of General Aurelio, and so on. Though it's never told outright, the story is set in the 19th and early 20th century in a town that could be in Colombia, but could be anywhere in the continent, with civil wars between liberals and conservatives that go on forever, with characters who speak and think in entirely recognizable ways. The novel deals at great length with the perversions of power and the disappointment of politics, but it does so by telling a story, not of governments, politicians or formal institutions, but of a people who are best understood in terms of their relationship to a single family. Like Coronel Aureliano Buendia, who got lost in the solitude of his immense power and began to lose direction. Aureliano make many uh, wars, many battles without knowing the reason. He believed in uh, some party, but he didn't really believe in the political vision. He only wanted to fight. And that means that all the characters have their revolution. Also, the traumatic uh, uh, changing in Orosla, the mother, it was really uh, surprising for me. Because when I start reading, I thought she is an ordinary woman. And after that, when, when we see her relation with the son, when I see uh, what she done with Arcadio and when she entered the court and tried to prevent him to execute uh, some people, it was really beautiful changing. So this character from a normal woman changed to a revolution woman. She tried to control, to prevent, to change, and she was really hard woman. She wanted to rule. And this is a revolution. This is kind of a revolution. So even for some Arabic women, she was not really understand what happened in, in, in South America. So maybe for that, she didn't notice the political side of the, uh, of the novel. What I understand as one who read it from another culture, that there is many, many revolution, but it was a social revolution. And uh, it was also this feeling of uh, isolation for all the characters. I think this feeling is something that we share it in all the third world. We feel this uh, isolation. And 
every person is searching for his revolution to change something. Maybe he did it on the right way, maybe in the wrong way. But at the last, each person who is under dictatorship or not really convinced on what happened on his country have this feeling of a solution. The question of how to build a just and free society is close to Rima's heart, who, like many in her country, sought political change, but who has instead come to live in good-humored exile in Brisbane, waiting for the war to finish back in Syria. Next, we hear from an earlier generation of Brisbane's refugees. Rodolfo Alemand is himself from Latin America, from Chile. And while his life has been deeply influenced by some of the same ideas that drive 100 years of solitude, he didn't get those ideas from the novel. He came to live in Brisbane in 1988. Uh, completely finish the reading because it's uh, quite difficult to read that book I don't know for some reason just I don't know I couldn't understand or something like that but you know like uh, the, the, the same names and, and the same sort of uh, situation that's happening in different generations and, and times so uh, it, it was too confusing I suppose and uh, too many other things uh, when I was reading there was a uh, in the middle of a uh, dictatorship in, in Chile. So there was so many things to think about else than, than just reading a confusing book. During the, that time, I was a, well, a child, you know, I was like a thir- 13 years old and, and so many things that uh, as a child I was witness sort of violence and, uh, well, after the, the, the coup with the Pinochet, uh, the end it was overthrown. But uh, I live in Santiago, Chile, and um, very middle-class suburb, and so I was in a very nice sort of surrounding, and uh, I just kind of drive from Santiago to Brisbane, and um, I just, uh, I love the, the city, you know, the, the weather, you know, that's it's no cold weather, so <laughs> that was something different. And so I started here in Brisbane. I came to as a political refugee here, so I didn't know where I was going because I, I come under the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees Protection. So I didn't know where I was going, and I was told in the airport in Chile what my destiny was. You know, like a, so somebody told me in, in, in Santiago when I just about to board the, the plane, you're going to Brisbane in Australia. So for me, it was the same because I, I have to get out of the country anyway. So whatever I was going, that's fine. I sort of knew something about Australia, the, the you know, the typical Skippy, the kangaroo, or that's sort of TV programs that I used to watch as a child. I prefer uh, kangaroos than gorillas. <laughs> 
By the 1960s, most of the 20 or so nations that make up Latin America had been independent from Spanish colonial powers for a century, continuing to find national answers to questions of poverty, inequality and political instability. By the 60s, many intellectuals and activists were looking back to ideas of a united Latin America as well as revolutionary left-wing politics as a solution to the problems of human development and the consonant threat of the ever-expanding imperial power of the US. The 60s and 70s were a time of great idealism and vision, encouraged by the success of the 1958 Cuban Revolution, in particular which called for a broad program of rights. Of the laborers to the land, of the workers to the fruit of their labor, of children to education, of the sick to medical assistance, of youth to work, of students to free education, of black and Indian people to the full dignity of human life, of women to civil, social and political equality, of old people to security, of intellectuals, artists and scientists to fight with their works for a better world of sovereign states to nationalize imperial monopoly and thus rescue the riches and resources of the nation, of countries to free commerce with all the countries in the world, of nations to their full sovereignty. Though different in their demands and their democratic intentions, the left-wing movements that aimed to create this new world met with repression and bitter disappointment. The 70s and 80s saw a string of military dictatorship emerge across South America, not all of which were domestically grown. Fueled by the Cold War and transnational corporate interests, the U.S. had been covertly influencing the governments of Latin America countries since World War II, fostering an extremely violent and unstable political climate around the region. During the 60s and 70s, many people were killed by guerrillas or the military regimes who emerged to suppress these left-wing movements. Military governments, though inevitably authoritarian, implemented a economic, social and foreign policies. They had staunch supporters and intense opponents. Because they tried to change this state of things, nearly 200,000 men and women have died throughout the continent. Women arrested while pregnant gave birth in prison and their children given up for adoption or sent to orphanages by order of the military authorities. Dictatorship meant death and it also meant exile. No le tiene miedo a nada, no Apenas aprendí a caminar Me dejaron solita en la cascada Well, apart from that, I also was a soccer player. So in the communities, they all play soccer. Well, apart from the Australian, <laughs> some of them. <laughs> Here, you know, like uh, after a while, you start... Uh, differencing who is from Ghana or Sudan or Ethiopia, something like that that we would never have could have done before, you know? So that that's uh, an enrich like uh, your knowledge and because um, it gives you a broader understanding of well I was a political refugee so and and my country uh, then it was still under the, 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 the dictatorship so I had a message 
to give to to the the community here or the I was uh, being released being captured from the secret police so uh, I was really political motivated and uh, my goal was like uh, to to make the those uh, people who play in soccer to try to understand a little bit more of the politics what was happening in their own countries you know I was like an ambassador for for my political point of view the soccer players that uh, in a way, they didn't know or they didn't want to acknowledge what was happening. People who were tortured, who were imprisoned, or who were trying to escape from this horror left South America. Chile lost 10% of its population to exile during the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. Others had to leave because of economic pressures and poverty, which are also related to instability. Others left following a member of the family. Australia's introduction to the special humanitarian program in 1981 meant that people who had suffered serious discrimination and human rights abuses were able to find safety here, with the largest communities coming from Argentina, Uruguay, Chile, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras and Nicaragua. Through all of human time, we, the inventors of tales who will believe anything, feel entitled to believe that it is not yet too late to engage in the creation of the opposite utopia, a new and sweeping utopia of life where no one will be able to decide for others how they die, where love will prove true and happiness be possible, and where the races condemned to 100 years of solitude will have at last and forever a second opportunity on Earth. 100 years of solitude as a local chronicle is representative of the history of Colombia and of Latin America in general, passing from the mythical pre-conquest time to that of history marked by interminable civil wars, dictators, coup d'etat, brief resurgences of democratic rule, social revolutions promising much and betrayed by the arrival of the U.S. Marines or of CIA funds to finance the counter-revolution. 100 Years is a total novel that treats Latin America socially, historically, politically, mythically and epically. The sheer weight of social problems and quickened change have shaped the writing coming out of the continent. The political urge manifest in Garcia Marquez and many other writers who came after him is understandable and often regarded as a social good. Mexican novelist Carlos Fuentes summarized it saying, as writers, our contribution to society lies less in political action than in the two social needs that a writer is best prepared to fulfill language and imagination. Deprive a society of its words or its memory, of its speech or its desires, and you are easy prey to false illusions, providential leadership and other traditional ills of the Latin American polity. You're tuned in to Radio in Color. Je n'ai pas peur de la route, 
story we learn about Australia's relationship with Indonesia in the 1980s. We look at the little-known controversy that surrounded the English translation of Indonesia's best-known 20th century novel, The Buru Quartet, which narrowly created a diplomatic incident for a hobbyist translator and one-time staff member of the Australian Embassy in Jakarta, Max Lane. But first, a look at the rules of the literary game back in the 1980s. With about half of the world's population behind the Iron Curtain, finding ways to evade state censorship was a common pastime for many readers and indeed a necessary prologue to a lot of reading that went on at the time. Take the idea of the Samizdat, for example, a form of dissident, do-it-yourself publishing that involved people copying out censored publications, typically by hand and into school notebooks. The handwritten manuscripts were then passed from reader to reader, with the expectation that at least some of them would copy out a new manuscript before the first and last few pages of the Samistat got lost, and with them, the identity of the author, the title of the work, and often, the beginning and the end of the story. At first, the Russian word Samistat described the product of such clandestine scribbling, the actual booklet that gets written and could get you into all sorts of trouble if found in your possession. After all, creating samizdats was a way of bypassing state censorship for works that usually criticised those in power or else modelled lifestyles and choices that were against the grain of socialist moralism. Examples of banned books that made it big in the underground circuit include all of Alexander Solyanitsyn's works, including of course his most famous Gulag Archipelago of 1973. Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita also circulated in handwritten copies behind the Iron Curtain, as did the poems of Polish poet Czesław Milosz. Banned books make for famous books. Solyanitsyn was awarded a Nobel Prize in 1970 and Milosz in 1980. In Cultural Revolution China, romantic novels remained in huge demand despite the censor's best intentions to get people to focus on historical materialism. But novels weren't the only cultural product to be reproduced and distributed illegally in the Cold War, and Russia wasn't the only place where such scribbling took place either. After Ayatollah Khomeini was exiled by the Shah of Iran in 1964, his sermons were smuggled into Iran on cassette tapes and widely copied, thus increasing his popularity and contributing, at least indirectly, to the Iranian revolution. After the revolution of 1979 led to the establishment of an Islamic state, the situation reversed and an ever-growing catalogue of books banned by the authorities started circulating as samizdats. Among the list of popular banned books was Salman Rushdie's Satanic Verses, the 1988 novel that sparked one of the best-known bookish controversies of the decade. 
On Valentine's Day of 1989, Ayatollah Khomeini, or Imam Khomeini, as he is known to Shia Muslims across the world, broadcast a fatwa on Tehran radio to eliminate the writer and declared the rest of the day should be one of mourning. As the spiritual leader of his faith, Khomeini issued an edict ruling that the satanic verses was demeaning to the Prophet Muhammad and therefore blasphemous. The term satanic verses refers to a set of alleged Quranic revelations that allowed prayers to be made to three pagan Meccan goddesses and makes a rather small portion of the book. The novel was controversial from the start and it was already banned in five countries by the time Khomeini elevated it to the critical standing of deadly. Hundreds died in riots, an editor was killed, a publisher shot, a translator stabbed and books burned from Bolton to Islamabad. Though everyone who was familiar with the contents of the satanic verses was technically sentenced to death, most readers have survived to tell the tale. And this included Salman Rushdie himself, whose survival was not at all assured over the nine years he spent living in 30 secret locations across the UK. So how does the story end? Well, two decades after Khomeini's injunction against the novel, in September of 1998, the new Iranian president, Mohammad Khatami, publicly declared the state would not support the fatwa any longer. And yet, there's a small group of readers who remains bent on a plot twist. To this day, conservative sections of the Iranian clergy continue to uphold the death sentence, with one Iranian foundation holding a bounty of $2.8 million on Rushdie's shiny head. Censorship, or more precisely, list of banned books, existed in Australia from 1901 until 1975. The banned list was an ever-changing compilation to which titles were continually added and only sporadically removed, and the list was kept secret from the public until 1958. In her 2012 book, The Census Library, literary historian Nicole Moore recounts how 6,000 or 7,000 of these volumes were housed in an archive in Canberra. Between the brown covers, there was a first edition of the Kama Sutra, as well as a first edition of James Joyce's Ulysses. Also present in this big collection of banned books were a book banned for blasphemy, comics and picture porn, as well as rows of pocket-sized paperbacks. But this is not an Australian library. Its content were collected as imports, the property of importers and individuals arriving in Australia that was deemed suspicious and removed under customs powers. The books are not a national collection, but indeed foreign contraband, either banned on the spot by customs officers or banned later on. As a whole, this collection of books forms an unknown but telling part of Australia's relations with the world, demonstrating what was deemed to be an Australian reading. From seized un-Australian readings to controversy over literary translation, we now travel north to learn about a diplomatic incident that did not happen in 1980, an incident that speaks volumes about Australia's place in the world in the decades that have gone. 
1979, Pramudia Anantatora and 15,000 other political prisoners were released from the prison camp on the Indonesian island of Buru, where they had been illegally detained for almost 14 years in very poor conditions. By 1980, Pramudia was back in Jakarta, but under very close surveillance. At that time, Max Lane was a mid-level staff member in the Australian embassy in Jakarta. He had been interested in culture and literature for a long time, and so he welcomed the opportunity to translate Pramudia's novel, This Earth of Mankind, into English. Orang memanggil aku Minka. That eternally harassing, tantalizing future. Mystery. We will all eventually arrive there, willing or unwilling, with all our soul and body, and too often it proves to be a great despot. And so, in the end, I arrive too. Whether the future is a kind or a cruel god is, of course, its own affair. The novel, which is one in a group of four, was composed as a tale spoken aloud by Pramudia while he was a political prisoner on Buru Island. The novel tells the story of a young Javanese writer's struggle against Dutch colonial oppression in the 1890s. As explained by the novel's translator, Max Lane, in one scene in the book, the writer, Minka, is forced to walk on his knees to see the local official, who turns out to be his father, to whom he asks, what is the reason you created customs that would so humiliate your own descendants? Lane goes on to comment, what Pramudia is saying here to modern-day Indonesians is that they should not crawl in front of authority figures. Pramudia made his debut as a writer in 1947, the same year when he made his debut as a prisoner. In the Dutch prison he read, among others, John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men and William Sarayan's The Human Comedy. Pramudia would be imprisoned by the Dutch on charges of anti-colonialism a few more times in the next couple of years, and after independence, he would spend a grand total of 14 years in jail in Buru. As a leftist supporter of the Indonesian leader Sukarno, Mr Pramudia was taken prisoner in 1965 after a failed coup that eventually led to the coming to power of Suharto, a general and a tough anti-communist. Pramudia was denied pens of any kind or paper in prison, and so, to prove that he could not be silenced, he told the story of Minka, the hero of the Buru Quartet, to his fellow prisoners every night. In this way, the author was playing on a long Indonesian tradition of oral storytelling. Two years before his release, he was a loud paper and a typewriter and wrote the first two volumes of the quartet. This was the version of Bumi Manusi, or This Earth of Mankind, that the young Max Lane had started translating in 1980. In an interview with the magazine Asymptote, Lane recounts what happened when he told his superior about the translation. He says, In 1981, I informed the ambassador that I had completed the translation and hoped soon to publish it through Penguin Books Australia. While I saw the project as a major contribution to bettering Australian-Indonesian cultural relations and something good for the promotion of Indonesian literature in general, the ambassador and the Australian government saw it as an undiplomatic activity. Bumi Manusia had been banned by the Suharto regime in 1981, so I was in effect publishing a banned book. The ambassador arranged for me to leave Indonesia as soon as possible in order that I should be out of the country before the Indonesian government found out about this activity. During this whole period, the Australian government was complicit in the murderous activities of the Suharto regime. The Australian government had celebrated the anti-communist mass murders following an attack 
attempted coup in Indonesia in 1965, when about one million people were murdered. And the Australians also supported the Suharto regime's invasion of East Timor in 1975. By the mid-1980s, about 300,000 Timorese were dead because of this, says Lane. The Australian government provided weapons and training to Indonesia during most of this period. According to Lane, they saw themselves as a close partner of the Suharto regime and did not like an Australian diplomat translating a book that the regime had banned, written by a person that the regime had imprisoned. Max Lane was sent home from his Australian diplomatic post for translating what has been described as the best, most beautiful novel in the history of modern Indonesian literature. He was recalled from Jakarta in September 1980. Pramudia Nantatora, meanwhile, was imprisoned for the publication and later released and also reported weekly to the military. So why was Pramudia so controversial in Indonesia? Here's UQ historian Patrick Jory. As you know, Australia had a, a close relationship with the with Indonesia, particularly after Suharto takes over in '66. He takes on, you know, he realigns Indonesia from its sort of anti-imperialist, sort of nationalistic stance, toying also with relations with 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 China and even the Soviets, um, back towards the United States. Um, and uh, after the you know the, the sort of massacre of communists in 1965-66, it, it emerges as this, this staunchly anti-communist state. So Australia and Indonesia's interests align. So Indonesia becomes the Australian relations develop quite strongly during this period. Ramutia is, is imprisoned. He's seen so he's, he's a guy on the left at a period in which um, anyone you know left of centre was automatically sort of associated with the with, with the communist party. So he, he's he's a difficult figure in the context of, of, of closening Indonesia-Australian relations. So when the book is published, the Indonesian government bans it. I mean, it's seen from the perspective of the new order as, as uh, too far to the left to be circulated. And I think Australia, because of its relationship with Indonesia, needs to kind of sort of try and um, not, not toe the line, but, but um, it doesn't want to upset Indonesia excessively over this issue. It's well known that even though the book is a story about the origins of Indonesian nationalism, uh, the beginning of the nationalist movement against the Dutch, but it's also seen as a, uh, an implicit critique of the New Order regime. And in fact, the New Order regime, the military dictatorship in, in Indonesia, is, is almost um, compared to the, uh, the Dutch colonial regime. You can uh, read the book at different, different levels. It's, it's also a story of a of uh, a coming-of-age story, as you say, a critique of Dutch colonial rule, the story of the Indonesian nation, but, but at another level it's also a critique of the regime which had, had imprisoned uh, Pramutia, where the book was actually um, born when he sort of relates it to his fellow prisoners. My very first book that I got is called uh, uh, Rumah Kaca, uh, uh, The Glass House. 
and uh, it's one of the churchology yeah, the yeah? yeah, yeah and uh, I got it through a friend mm. and he had to get it from Pasar Senen which is the Senen Pasar which is a black market Oh, yeah. And I had to pay like 35,000 and it was like hush hush yeah. under the table, mm. you know. And his books sort of become available for those people who, who really want to find them. Even though they're banned, it's not hard to actually lay your hands on them. But because you have this sort of staunchly anti-communist authoritarian regime in power for so long, uh, you know, even though he's he's so highly regarded, his books were never you know never that widely spread just because of you know, the nature of this dictatorship. It's it was quite popular amongst you know academics, literary types uh, during during the eighties and the nineties. It's on the reading lists of of every Indonesian you know history Indonesian studies course even today. It's said that the book was more popular actually outside Indonesia than it was inside Indonesia. Inside Indonesia, you know, intellectuals and you know, journalists and those people sort of um, read it, some students, um, but the large majority of Indonesians, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't have, didn't have, so um, it's perhaps, he's perhaps more famous outside of Indonesia. Pramudia died in 2006, but his books remain in the banned list, and while he's famous internationally, he's little known in Indonesia. The novel has been translated into 42 languages, but none as controversial as English. This is Max Lane discussing why the book has this potential to inspire rebellion. To all intents and purposes, you know, an independent Indonesia came into being around 1949-1950. A new independent government could start to look at the issue of developing Indonesia. But as soon as that process started, of course, this completely new nation was faced with the question, what, in what direction would Indonesia go? And over the next 15 years, 1950 to 1965, there were elections, two rounds of elections. The Communist Party and other left-wing groups grew and grew and grew. By 1960... The left-wing organisations, uh, the largest of which was the Communist Party, probably had about 20 million active members, making it the largest left-wing movement in the world outside of, uh, in a non-communist or non-socialist country. And that all came to a head in 1965 in very murky circumstances where an, you know, a midnight conspiracy to change the armed forces leadership took place and failed and provided the opportunity and the pretext for Suharto's wing of the armed forces to seize power, launch a purge which probably killed around one million supporters of the Indonesian left wing in very vicious, brutal circumstances, also involving torture, systematic rape of, uh, of women on the left wing side of politics, beheadings, disembowelments and so on. That was all meant to terrorise the 20 million left-wing activists and, and even more sympathizers.
from controversy in the bookshelves in Latin America to Southeast Asia, it's now time to come back home. In the minutes ahead, you'll hear about two Brisbane poets of the 1980s, but you'll hear the names of three. These are Judith Wright, who lived in Mount Tambourine, and Uzera Nunakal, who began life as Cat Walker and lived in Strawbrook Island. It's amazing how much you can read their poems next to each other. Judith Wright, in her work, or quite a lot of her work, um, was looking at the Australian land and country and often thinking about the history of dispossession, the original inhabitants, and thinking of herself as a white woman, a descendant, in fact, of quite wealthy pastoralists from the New England area. Um, and, of course, Kath Walker, in her poetry, was writing about Aboriginal people and the land that had been taken from them and also the ancestors um, and, you know, a, a different way, of course, and a very non white western way of thinking about country and about the animals and about trees and nature um, and so on. So not always connecting um, because there's a difference um, in worldview and history. It's very difficult for white people to fully apprehend um, the Aboriginal way of being in country and way of thinking and perhaps many people say that Maybe that can't happen completely. Um, but there was certainly an effort here, you know, a, an intention um, to communicate on the part of both poets. How can we exist here when there is the history of murder and dispossession? That's something that she talks about quite a lot. She also does a lot of writing about birds and flowers and I suppose more conventional landscape topics but Australian themes. And in the later part of her life, where she was a very um, activist and committed environmentalist, she wrote a lot of quite clearly environmental poems as well. I guess here I'm trying to make a bit of a distinction between writing about the Australian landscape and the Australian bush, including with the historical and racial themes that um, Wright does look at um, on quite a few occasions um, and a sort of a more developed environmental consciousness. In the history of Australian culture, you can appreciate, white people can appreciate the Australian landscape without necessarily being environmentalists. Um, so then there's a question of how might environmental issues connect to an Aboriginal way um, of looking at the world. Judith Wright, her later work, um, which is quite clearly politically environmentalist and her poetry did cop some flack from sections of the literary establishment who felt it was too political. I'm not sure that I would see this so much as a change in her work as a development of a current that had always been there. Not everyone agrees with that by the way, some people think that her, her later work is fine. Um, but there was a, a bit of a thing in um, 70s, 80s about you know how political could poetry be you know it's that kind of thing like at what point does a message get in the way of the artistic element of, of a poem and that that's actually a, a valid discussion to have um, so there was some controversy about her work in the reception of it in that later part but in fact she had always been interested in what um, in the later part of her life from the 70s um, began to be called ecology or the environment rather than the bush or you know Australian flora and fauna using sort of white filler terms here. Um, Kath Walker 
Um, her writing developed really, I think, in terms of the range of themes she took on about Aboriginal people in Australia and um, how she wrote political themes into her poetry. There are always some, again I'm talking here about only some sections of the literary establishment, who felt that her work was so political it wasn't really poetry. Um, but I should say the reading public didn't agree. Her first book of poetry sold out and it was enormously successful. What that means is that white people were buying it. Aboriginal people of course knew her poetry and you know, she read it um, at various functions and events um, before it was actually published. It was Jacaranda Press in Brisbane that published her first book, um, in fact. So, as with a lot of clearly activist poets, the question of literary value from some sections of the establishment was hurled <laughs> at Kath Walker and it was hurled at Judith Wright in the later um, part of her life, but they both had audiences. <laughs> The poem I'm going to read is Municipal Gum by Ujuru Nunakal. Gum tree in the city street, hard bitumen around your feet. Rather you should be in the cool world of leafy forest halls and wild bird calls. Here you seem to me like that poor cart horse, castrated, broken, a thing wronged, strapped and buckled, its hell prolonged, whose hung head and listless mien express its hopelessness. Municipal gum, it is dolorous to see you thus, set in your black grass of bitumen. O oh, fellow citizen, what have they done to us? Uzero Nunokol was born Kathleen Jean Mary Roska on the 3rd of November 1920, a descendant of the Nunokol people of Minjeriba. During her lifetime, she was and continues to be recognized as one of Australia's leading literary figures, who used her pen to give voice to the indigenous struggle for rights and justice. Uzero Nunakal of the Nunakal people of Strabrook Island was known as Kath Walker until she returned to her language name in 1988 as a sign of protest against Australia's bicentenary celebrations and as a symbol of pride in an Aboriginal heritage. During the 1960s, at the same time as developing her reputation as a poet, Walker became increasingly engaged in political activism in support of Aboriginal rights, social justice, and conservationism. Through friends, she became involved in the Queensland Council for the Advancement of Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders and came to play an important role in the national organization, the Federal Council for the Advancement of Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders. The latter played a leading role in the agitation that led to voting rights and Australian citizenship for Aborigines. In 1968, she moved to Holland Park and the following year unsuccessfully stood as the ALP candidate in her local electorate of Greenslopes. Uzero Nunako was awarded honorary doctorates by several universities and received numerous awards. 
She was made MBE but returned the honor in 1988 as a protest against the government's lack of support for Aboriginal rights. In 1969, she was invited to attend the World Council of Churches consultation on racism in London. The event was a pivotal moment for Walker. She returned to Australia, convinced of the need for Aboriginal activists to work within their own political organizations rather than white-dominated ones. At the end of the 1960s, she left two councils for the newly formed Brisbane Aboriginal and Islanders Council and the National Tribal Council, of which she was briefly chairperson. Power struggles within the Brisbane Council led Walker to leave the organization in 1971 and return to her ancestral home of North Strabrook Island. In 1972, she withdrew from active involvement in political organizations to live in semi-retirement on a leasehold property, Mungalba, owned Minjeriba, establishing the Nunakal Nugi Education and Culture Center, where she regularly conducted programs for groups of school students and visitors. She described herself as an educator, storyteller, and poet. In the 70s, she assumed the role of educator and cultural guardian and ambassador for her people. After some opposition from the Queensland government, she established the Nunakal Nugi Education and Cultural Center at Mungalba, near Amity Point and Strawbrook Island. The center became an important venue for visiting Aboriginal students from around the country. What you are about to hear are sections from Don Featherstone's short film on Uzeru Nunakal, featuring the poet herself reading and explaining one of her best-known poems, The Dispossessed, which was originally published in 1964. Kath Walker is widely known as a courageous fighter for Aboriginal rights. She became a poet to give a voice to the Aboriginal movement in the early 60s. Kath has settled at Moongalba on North Stradbroke Island, the traditional home of her people, the Noonuckle tribe. She has written five collections of poetry and prose, and the power of her work has been acknowledged worldwide. Peace was yours, Australian man, with tribal laws you made, till white colonials stole your peace with rape and murder raid. They shot and poisoned and enslaved until a scattered few, only a remnant now remain, and the heart dies in you. The white man claimed your hunting ground, and you could not remain. They made you work as menial for greedy private gain. Your tribes are broken vagrants now, wherever whites abide, and justice of the white man means justice to you denied. They bought you Bibles and disease, the liquor and the gun. With Christian culture such as these, the white command was one. A dying race, you linger on, degraded and oppressed. Outcasts in your own native land, you are the dispossessed. I wrote The Dispossessed uh, in the early 60s when we were trying to gather up uh, people to 
formed the Civil Rights Movement. And what inspired me to write The Dispossessed was um, there were those in the political world who were extreme left-wingers and there was extreme right-wingers, the Aboriginals were right in the middle, and they were all trying to get possession of the Aboriginal people. And this has been going on for the last 200 years, you know, they talk about the Aboriginals as our blacks. So I stood up and said, why don't you just stop and ask the Aborigines what they want? And of course, everything broke loose. And I went out very disillusioned and very bitter and very angry. And I went home that night and I put down in draft form a poem which finally became The Dispossessed. The condition for Aboriginals during that period of time was very bad. We have the highest rate of infant mortality in the world. We still have it. 17 of our children dies against one in the white world in this lucky country called Australia. We have the highest leprosy rate in the world in Western Australia in this so-called lucky country. Now, in the Australian years BC, and by that I mean before Cook, um, we were a disease-free race of people. And all these diseases came in. I heard the voices of my people, and every time I heard a story like that, I went home and I wrote a poem about it. As a writer, delegate and spokesperson for her people's cause, she traveled in China, Europe, the US and Africa, representing Aboriginal Australia. In 1984, she visited China as part of an Australia cultural delegation, the trip providing the inspiration for her fourth and final poetry collection, Kath Walker in China. Judith Wright was Kath Walker's senior by five years. Judith Wright, a fifth-generation Australian, was born at Thangara Station near Armidale in 1915. The Cycads by Judith Wright, 1947. Their smooth dark flames flicker at time's own root. Round them the rising forests of the years alter climates of forgotten earth and silt with leaves the strata of first birth. Only the antique Cycads sullenly keep the old bargain life has long since broken. And, cursed by age, through each chill century, they watch the shrunken moon, but never die. For time forgets the promise he once made, and change forgets that they are left alone. Among the complicated birds and flowers, they seem a generation carved in stone. Leaning together, Down those gulfs they stare, over whose darkness dance the brilliant birds that cry in air one moment and are gone. And with their countless suns the years spin on. Take their cold seed and set it in the mind, and its slow root will lengthen deep and deep, till, following You cling on the last ledge over the unthinkable, unfathomed edge beyond which man remembers only sleep. That was Psychas, a poem by Judith Wright about a type of plant that grows very slowly, lives very long, and is found across much of the subtropical and tropical part of the world, including, of course, Australia. 
And that was a geographically dispersed account of literary controversies of the 1980s. You've been hearing episode 7 of Radio in Color, a special documentary series to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Radio 4ZZZ. We acknowledge the generous support of the Community Broadcasting Fund. My name is Karen. Special thanks to our guest today, Rima Flayhan, a Syrian feminist and reader of novels who came to live in exile in Brisbane in 2014. Rodolfo Alemand, an artist who has kicked many a political football since he was forced to come to our town in 1988. Bronwen Levy, an expert in literature and poetry from the University of Queensland. You can listen back to our stories on the 4ZZZ website, 4ZZZFM.org.au, 